Hello and welcome to the Black Business Psychology Networks podcast. This podcast showcases an online event that occurred on Thursday the 18th of June 2020. It features professionals who had studied psychology at undergraduate and postgraduate level and are now working in various industries. The speakers featured include Michael Ndeze, Taslim Thirani and Charlotte Pong. The next voice you'll hear is my own voice, Dr Grace Mansour-Rusu. I am an organisational psychologist and I'm just introducing myself and why I decided to do this online event that has now been recorded. Continue listening for more information. I've been a psychologist and um, I did my Masters in Organisational Psychology. So if those of you that are not aware what that is, that's the psychology of work and organisation. So we studied things like selection and assessment, so how to choose people for jobs, career coaching, um, a little bit of employee relations, um, lots of different topics, like organisational change, training and development. That was a one year master's that I did, but you can do it in two years. Um, after which I thought I'd have a nice shiny career in consultancy, but I happened to graduate during the recession of 2008-9 so that wasn't really where I went I worked for a year then I did a PhD in business management but the psychology side and then I've been working in lots of different industries since so things like transport doing research academia I'm currently working in talent management so lots of different areas but one thing I'd noticed was that when speaking to fellow psychologists was that or people who've done occupational psychology was that a lot of people do an undergrad have dreams of going into clinical or any other specialism find out it's not really for them and then do something else like business related and people think that that I've spoken to that they've wasted their psychology degree and that always I felt I always felt bad for people when they said that because for me a degree it can either be kind of like a gateway to your future in terms of if you want to go into that area or it could just be a gateway into learning about yourself and learning about what you might not necessarily want to go into so all the skills that you learn from an undergrad or a postgrad are really valuable in so many different areas um, so things like psychology will help you with your decision making project management skills obviously if you've done a bsc like what i did which is bachelor of science in psychology it's full of stats so maths data analysis, data entry, um, so anything to do with data, information, managing information, learning about people as well is where you can go. So I'll start with introducing our speakers. So our first speaker is Michael Ndede, who works for Department for Transport as a programme manager currently. Then we've got Tazleen Thirani, who is an organisational psychologist slash coach slash academic slash trainer and then we also have Charlotte Opong who is a digital transformational lead I hope I've got that right um, and all of these people will be sharing their career journeys with you and at the end of the first hour so around 7 p.m we will have our Q&A session so please get your questions ready in the chat so I'll first of all hand it over to Michael Hi, good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael Ndidi, and as Grace said, I'm a program manager at the Department for Transport. So I'll first start by talking a little bit about my academic background. So I did a degree in applied psychology with clinical psychology, and this was quite a unique degree in that it prepared people who wanted to become clinical psychologists and eventually go on to be the clinical doctorate. It was a four-year course which involved a sandwich placement and a sandwich placement was meant to be in a clinical setting. So when it came to doing my one-year sandwich placement, I was offered a job working as a research analyst for the Metropolitan Police Strategy Unit. And I decided to take that job because it was paid. Most of the clinical placements were not paid. Um, it was in London and I always considered that I could get the clinical experience I needed to get afterwards and they, in order for me to become an occupational psychologist. So um, I, I did a job with the Met Police and it was great. And then when I went back to my final year of study, that's when I really started to think about what it was I needed to do to gain some experience to enable me to apply to become a clinical psychologist. 
So to become a clinical psychologist, you first need to do an, a, a, a BSc undergrad, and then you need to do a three-year clinical doctorate, which is what you had to do at the time when I was studying. And the doctorate is quite competitive. That's why it's a pre-request to get one year, at, at least one year clinical experience. So in my final year of study, I spoke to a lot of career advisors, clinical psychologists, lecturers, and they, were, and they told me the sort of things I needed to do to get onto the doctorate. I, I also spoke to people who were on the doctorate as well to gain experience of what type of experience I needed, to, to gain an insight into what type of experience I needed, sorry. And in my final year, I actually got a job working as a research assistant for a psychologist in Dover. It was only for about six months and I thought that would be helpful to me, but actually it wasn't, I didn't gain any clinical experience. I just did a lot of data analysis. So after my final year of study, I um, started to embark on my journey to gain clinical experience. And at this point, it was hard to get my foot in the door. So I really thought, hmm, I should have taken that one year placement that my university were offering me. I got a, a couple of volunteering roles. I first got a job working with Samaritans on their helplines and working with a charity called Sane Line as well. Both jobs were similar. They just were about speaking to people who had mental health problems, signposting them, giving them advice on what they could do. And it wasn't a type of role that really sets you apart from the rest. You didn't need a psychology degree to do those roles. They were volunteering roles and it wasn't something that would have enabled me to get onto the clinical placement anyway. So I managed to get a job working at Belmarsh Prison as a support worker, um, just supporting a counsellor. And I worked with vulnerable prisoners, so prisoners with mental health issues. And in that role, um, I would say it was, it was the first time I experienced like, face-to-face what it was to work with people with mental health problems. And I, I believe that in itself, and with some of the other experience I got from Samaritans and Saint Line, I started to realize that in order to become a clinical psychologist, you need a lot of emotional resilience, you need a lot of patience, you need a lot of empathy, and I just it 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 it, it, don't, it, it dawned on me that yeah I, I didn't really want to do it at the time, so um, I put that to the back burner, and then I decided to get a a, a graduate job. At the time, the civil service was doing a recruitment campaign um, for for graduates and I applied and got a job working with the home office as a caseworker. I did that for a few years and it was great and in the, but in, at the back of my, my mind I always felt that I still wanted to use my psychology degree to do something. At the same time one of my friends was doing her master's in occupational or organizational psychology and she was always she was also working in selection and assessment so I had a few conversations with her and she told me some of the things she was doing. Um, and I did a little bit of research myself and I found out that some of the things that I was experiencing in my day-to-day working life structures, burnout, performance management, well-being issues, selection, selection and assessment, these were things that occupational organizations psychologists dealt, dealt with. And um, it was appealing to me to have a deg- um, have skills in that sort of um, area and that's why really I chose to embark on my MSc in occupational or organizational psychology. So I applied for a few places. Um, I chose to go with Birkbeck University of London because they're quite flexible. All of their lectures and seminars were in the evening meaning that I could still work full-time and do my MSc part-time and it enabled me to pay for it as well. So that's what I did. And when I started my MSc, it, w- it wasn't easy. I had, I had been out academia for a few years. So I had to learn again how to write academically, how to read academic journals. And it, it was challenging at first, but once I got the hang of it, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my MSc. I learned so much from it. And um, yeah, Birkbeck is a great place to study if anybody's considering studying there. They're really flexible and understanding to their students. I did, as I said, I did my MSc over two years part-time. I did my dissertation in organisational politics and its impact on diversity and inclusion in the civil service. And currently I'm still working in the civil service now. So that's 
a quick overview of my academic background. So currently, as I said, I work as a program manager at the Department for Transport and I've been in my role for about a year. I've previously worked as a project manager also, a project support assistant and a caseworker. Um, so a program manager is responsible for managing a group of projects in a specific way to, in, to obtain benefits that you wouldn't normally get from managing um, single projects individually. I specifically work in rail franchising at the Department for Transport. So my program is concerned with ensuring that passengers have the best experience and ensuring that um, the, train, the trains that we are producing are value for money and driving economic growth and delivering value for money for taxpayers. So I manage a group of 15 projects in my program. I've got my own team where I'm responsible for one person who deals with risk management and one person who deals with reporting. And a big part of my role is stakeholder engagement. So I speak to a lot of internal and external stakeholders. So I did a degree in applied psychology with clinical psychology and a master's in occupational psychology and I work as a program manager. So it, it seems very unconventional or even unconnected. And I'll touch on a couple of reasons why I didn't go down the traditional occupational psychology route after I did my MSc at Birkbeck. So firstly, I would say as soon as I started my MSc, I quickly realized that you didn't need to become a chartered occupational psychologist to work in an interesting field, um, such as selection and assessment or organizational change or work and well-being. Um, that's how personally I felt. Um, the masters made it clear to me that you can become a consultant or you can um, you can you become a, you can become an independent consultant or work in specific organisations doing these type of roles without necessarily needed to have the title of chartership. Um, so I didn't actually touch on it. Chartership is when you become a qualified occupational psychologist. So um, to become chartership, you first have to do your MSc and then do have two years supervised practice um, with somebody who's already an organizational psychologist. And that's the second point I want to pick up why I didn't go down the traditional route. And that's because it wasn't really clear to me how to become a chartered occupational psychologist at the time. The BPS on their website makes it quite simplistic in that you have a psychology degree, you do your master's, and then you do your two years supervised practice. But it's that two years supervised practice that wasn't uh, really clear, you know, how to obtain supervised practice or what were the steps or the processes in doing so. And whilst it says you two years supervised practice, in reality, it could take longer and it's quite expensive as well. So um, I know a few people who are embarking on chartership and they've been doing it for three to four years. And I suppose that it can be something that's quite positive in a way, because if you have the patience, and bearing in mind when you, when you are becoming chartered, it's still self-funded. So if you have the patience and, you can, and if you can pay for it bit by bit, um, and you're determined to do so, eventually you can become a chartered occupational psychologist if that's what you want. It, can, it just may take longer than two years, as I said. So currently I work as a program manager, and one of the modules that was quite interesting to me straight away in my MSc was organizational change, which is about which focuses on people that are affected by changes in the organization. Whereas pro program or project manager focuses on the processes involved in organizational change. Um, but I would say in my role, I perform quite a few change management functions and that's a career that I would like to carve out for myself in the future. Um, so yeah, that's that. Um, that was just a little brief overview of why I didn't take the traditional route in becoming a chartered occupational psychologist. So how do I use um, my psychology skills I learned in my MSc and what psychology skills do I use? So occupational organizational psychology is all about business. It's all about implementing psychology skills in the world of business. And one thing I took away from my MSc is being a good communicator. 
and I use that on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm speaking to internal and external stakeholders. It's all about being persuasive and getting people to see your point of view. So in my role, um, I make the people who I work with alive to uh, the risk and the issues that could impact the program and what we could do to mitigate them. Another thing you take from your MSc in organizational psychology is being commercially aware. Um, I would say because I work in the civil service, you need to be politically aware as well. So this is understanding how external factors could impact um, your day-to-day -day work. And in my case, the program that I manage. So for example, when COVID-19 started, it had a big impact in the supply chain on rail franchising. So the supply chain is who develops and delivers our trains. And it also had an impact obviously on the people who are working on the trains and a big financial impact on um, revenue as well. So my team and I had to decide how we could firstly manage those risks and mitigate them and it was a big conversation we had with stakeholders. And we also had to think of a plan to get things back to normal um, when COVID does blow over so that um, we can get, we can, we can try and achieve our program benefits again. Another thing you take away from the MSC or what I took away from the MSC was um, how to be a good leader or a good manager and how to manage, actually manage people. And I would say one thing I learned was that there's diversity in leadership. There's not one way to become a good leader or be a good manager. Um, in my opinion, anybody could be a good leader or a good manager. I personally try and take a transactional approach where I will give the people who work to me stretching responsibilities, tasks and activities. And if they perform them well, I'll carry on doing it and eventually I'll reward them. In terms of performance management, I learned that the theory the theories you learn about in occupational or organization psychology is clear that performance management is effective when it's ongoing so that's not having monthly or quarterly appraisals for the people who work under you it's doing it on a weekly or or on a weekly or bi-weekly basis that's how i tend to do it and that way i'm alive to their development developmental needs um i i have oversight of the work they're doing and just any concerns that they have, I'm aware of them straight away. Um, analytical skills is something else that I took away from my MSc and my undergrad also. I did a, I've done a lot of data analysis. Um, you learn a lot about stats in the psychology degree, obviously. Um, I don't use SPSS or do really difficult data analysis now, but I do get a lot of information from different project managers at one stage I could be getting 15 um, reports and it's my job to collate that, make it accessible to my stakeholders and senior managers and speak to it in meetings or um, meetings and, and um, program boards. So what does a typical day look like? Um, as I said, the big part of my job is um, creating a program dashboard or a program report and this is from all the information i get from different project managers so i could get maybe 15 excel spreadsheets in on a friday and by a tuesday i have to create a two-page dashboard so it takes a lot of an analysis i would then share that with my overall program team get their feedback on it make a few changes and then i'll speak to it at our monthly program board with um director generals and directors and it's really about giving an update on the role program. So financial updates, um, updates on performance, milestones and risks. Um, I also lead on risk management and risk training. So I train people on how to manage risks, how to define risks and how to um, mitigate them and prevent them from becoming issues and what to do when they do become issues. Um, and as I said, I have land management responsibility for two people at the moment. So I'm always having conversations with them about how their work is going and um, giving them various tasks to do. So that was a really quick and brief overview of my career journey so far and how I use my psychology skills in my day-to-day -day work. And I hope that was useful.
Thank you so much, Michael. That was so insightful. I, there's a lot of things I didn't know in that one as well. I didn't realise you worked with the trains. So maybe after we'll talk about that because I worked with a train organisation once a long time ago. But thank you so much for that. And if you've got any questions for Michael specifically, please put them in the chat. OK, so the next person we have is Tasleem Tharani, who has a slightly more traditional route into occupational psychology. Her career lends itself to that. However, it's still a bit unconventional. And um, if you'd like to hear more, just tune in because I'm sure you'll be very interested in what she's got to say. So I'll hand it over to her. Thank you very much. And I'm really extroverted, so I love seeing people's faces. So if any of you do want to turn your camera on, that will definitely be really supportive to me because I love speaking uh, to people. Um, so yeah, if you don't want to, that's absolutely fine. Oh, thank you. That is so lovely. It's nice to see see a few people. So um, so as Grace said, my career journey into occupational psychology seems really traditional, and I would say within that traditional route, I've taken a really um, unconventional. I work in a really unconventional space and I would say I've done a lot of what we call job crafting. So I've figured I've, I've along my journey, I figured out kind of who I am, what I stand for, um, who and how I want to be as a psychologist. And then I've tried to find opportunities for me to um, for me to um, tease that out in terms of in terms of what I do. I'm somebody who I've always felt like I've never quite fitted in um, in any particular space. Um, and so I've always wanted to do lots of different things so that all the different parts of me has um, has an outlet. And I don't know whether that comes from my extroversion or also from my sense of openness. Uh, but that's something that I think um, I've tried to um, why my career is just so crazy. So I would say that I have what we call a portfolio career. And this means that I don't do any one thing. It means I do lots and lots of different things, although all of those different things sits within psychology and I always say to people that I see myself as a psychologist first and an organizational and coaching psychology second so um, I was really interested in people and understanding why people behave in certain ways and so I did a psychology undergraduate degree at Warwick and then during my degree um, I had my first bout of major um, uh, depression so clinical depression during my undergraduate degree and I had to take um, I had to take a year out. Um, so I had to take a whole year out of university um, um, to um, work on my um, myself. And then I returned to university a year later. And um, and I think that really shifted things for me in terms of in terms of psychology. I think initially I thought that um, I was just doing it as a degree. I hadn't really thought much about it in terms of a career. I thought that it was quite an open degree that could lead me into lots of different areas. I was really shy when I was younger, uh, which is bizarre because I'm the most extroverted person that there is now. Um, but, um, but I was really shy and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I didn't really think that I could do anything. Um, and so psychology was just something that I felt that I could, it would lead me to places. And then when I had my own experience, I really wanted to go down then um, the clinical and or counselling route myself, because I thought, you know what, I've got this lived experience. I want to use it in a way that I can really help and support others. And so after my undergraduate degree, um, which was a huge achievement for me, um, I started to do work as an assistant psychologist uh, with the Tavistock and Portman NHS Trust. Um, I embarked on a psychodynamic counselling course and my aim was to go into clinical psychology and I realised very quickly that even though I wanted to use these listening skills um, and my psychology, I didn't want to work with people in this space. I wanted to work with people in this, in this space. Um, and, so, and so I then um, ended up working in HR and I worked in HR um, for about a year. And, um, and during, uh, during this um, experience in HR, I found myself getting bored very quickly. Um, I didn't find in HR that they were, that there was enough like inquiry or inquisitiveness or curiosity about why things uh, are happening the way they're happening or why people are behaving the way they're behaving or why we have really high turnover in some departments and there didn't seem to be any space for me to address those questions either 
Um, and so I kind of sat there and I was like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do with my life? Like I'm bored. Um, I've got no idea what to do next. Um, and, um, and my friend said, oh, why didn't you? Um, actually, I then thought about applying to an HR graduate scheme. And there's always a year between applying to an HR graduate scheme and getting into it. And, uh, and so I was like, what am I going to do in this year? And my friend was like, why didn't you just do a master's? And so I started Googling and I was Googling masters in HR. And then I decided to Google HR and psychology. And I stumbled across occupational psychology. I'd never heard of it as a thing before. So for those of you who are here, who are, on your undergrad, who are doing your undergraduate degrees, um, that's amazing. I'd never heard of occupational psychology um, throughout the whole of my undergraduate degree. So I then applied to do a master's um, in occupational psychology at Goldsmiths at the same time as Grace, 2008, 2009, graduated in the midst of the recession. Um, I was very lucky in the sense that um, I fell into a management consultancy role. Um, it started off as one day a week and then it ended up being three days a week and then it ended up being five days a week. But I was on a temporary contract and I was on a temporary contract that continued to be um, renewed. Um, and so 10 months in, I was not earning very much money. I was completely burnt out. I didn't feel like I fitted in within the organization. Um, and that was largely cultural as well as um, other, other things. And I was like, this isn't really where I want to be. But as I was doing my management consultancy role, because I like to do lots of different other things, I was volunteering within my religious community. I was uh, volunteering, um, working with um, an oxide, a bespoke oxide consultancy that was doing career coaching and career decision making. And I decided basically to hand in my resignation at this management consultancy with nowhere to go to. So it was a bit crazy. I had no job ahead of me. Um, but I'd kept in touch with all of my lecturers during my master's. And one of them said, you know what, Taz, we're looking for an intern. And it was a paid internship. Um, and so I applied. I was offered the intern internship. And, um, and we needed to register as we needed to register as self-employed in order to um, in order for me to be paid um, during that during that internship and that started off my self-employment journey uh, and um, that internship was in the area of health and well-being at work it was with a wonderful consultancy called affinity health at work i learned so much from them and they really liked me and so i've worked with them ever since on a variety of different projects which i'll talk to you about um, i also realized from my master's in occupational psychology that me thinking that i was a stupid one in my family um, i started when I did my master's in Oxide, it was the first time I was getting good grades. Um, and so I then decided that I really wanted to do a PhD. I loved research. I loved the practitioner stuff, but I also really loved research. And I decided that I wanted to do a PhD. So in 2012, I embarked on a PhD. Still haven't finished it, again, largely due to mental health challenges. Um, but during my PhD, um, I then also did lots of different things. So I was doing my PhD. I was lecturing at university and I can see a couple of my students here, uh, uh, my alumni students, which is lovely to see your faces. Um, yeah, so um, I was lecturing at the university. I was doing a lot of pastoral care. I was offering students career counselling and career coaching sessions. I was also doing lots of consultancy outside of the university as well. And you're probably now understanding why I didn't get the PhD done. Um, but I was working kind of lots of different, lots of different areas. And so now um, I do see myself as an organisational and coaching psychologist. I've also trained as a mindfulness practitioner and I work in a number of different areas. So my most, the most passionate area for me is in the space of social justice. When I worked in HR, I worked for the National Deaf Children's Society. Um, and, um, and that kind of got me into this um, understanding about justice and what social justice was. And then I also recognized through my own journey um, that I've had a lot of trauma in my life and a lot of injustice in my life and, and seen and witnessed a lot of inequity in my life. And I wanted to be able to use psychology to address some of these challenges. So um, I do work in the equity, justice and diversity and inclusion space. And that is incredibly, incredibly important to me. I also work as a career coach. I do a lot of um, career coaching. I work in the health and well-being at work space um, and I balance my own lived experience with the professional side. Um, and I don't necessarily name my own lived experience in the work that I do, but when I'm delivering workshops and training, they know it. It's like people know that I know. Um, and I don't know everything. Obviously, my experiences are, um, of uh, PTSD, anxiety and depression. So I don't obviously have an ex lots of things that I haven't experienced and everyone experiences those things really differently. But I found a way to um, 
use my own lived experience and personal experience within my work um, as, a, as a psychologist, um, which has been amazing. I also work in the area of leadership development um, and assessment and selection and um, mindfulness as well. So why um, the kind the question, the answer to the question of why I went outside the traditional role, I'm going to read you a quote because this is really why. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle ever. And I know some of you have heard me say this quote before, but I'm going to repeat it again. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle ever. And I, what I was finding, and this is so this was partly my experience in the management consultancy and generally my experience with an occupational psychology, um, is that I, I, and I, I imagine many of us just saw things differently and there just wasn't space for that difference. Um, there wasn't space for me to challenge uh, mainstream psychology and mainstream psychology approaches. Um, there wasn't, although now I'm finding ways to challenge that through lecturing, which is amazing. I'm loving that opportunity. Um, but I just felt that I, that in so many ways um, I didn't fit. And so I wanted to make sure that as a psychologist, that my role was really about enabling other people to touch into who they are and to, and, and to, so working on an individual level in that space, but also then working at an organizational level so that organizations can enable people to not be fitting in, um, you know, to not, to not have being forced to be like a square peg in a round, ho round hole. And actually my journey at the moment is, um, is learning how to be a square peg in a round hole. Uh, so that I'm, I'm standing, I'm standing up, I'm putting my head above, um, above, above the parapet. Um, so, um, so in terms of um, the way that I work now, I've just seen a question from Edna coming in. I do work in a very therapeutic way. So I bring my counselling skills in. I've trained up in acceptance and commitment therapy, although I use all these things in non-clinical settings. So when I, for example, when I deliver um, authentic leadership training, I remember there was one session and it was a with a really f small group of people. It was about, um, yeah, I had four people in the group and at the end of the session, they said, this felt really therapeutic. Um, and so I, so, so I, so I kind of bring in um, clinical counselling psychology, positive psychology, neuroscience, uh, research into, into all the things, into all the things that I do. Um, so, um, yeah. So in terms of examples of projects that I've worked on, I, I'm going to struggle to, um, Grace sent us a list of questions. And one of the questions was, what does a typical day look like? And I would say that I don't have a typical day every single day looks completely different for me. Um, so for example, uh, today, uh, between 9.30 and one o'clock, I was um, um, assessing people on their psychometric testing training. So we were looking at personality and I was just observing people do their feedbacks. Um, and, I, and that was what I did. And then between two and 3.30, I was holding what was meant to be a safe space um, to um, within an organization. Um, for people to share how the events over the last few weeks um, around the Black Lives Matter movement and George Floyd, how that is impacting. And so I was holding a space um, for people um, to just come forward and to share their experiences and how this was affecting them. And now I'm doing this. So <laughs> this is kind of one of one of the day, one of the things that I do. Um, so every single day looks really different. So just wanted to name a few of the projects that I've worked in. So in terms of equity, diversity and inclusion, I've la largely done work around race, um, around racism at work. And one of the projects that I did as, as an associate for a consultancy called Delta Alpha Psi was working with one of the big four financial services companies and uh, supporting um, uh, senior managers who were black, Asian, minority, ethnic, um, to identify how they could move, move towards that partnership level. Because what they found was that um, they had really good representation lower down in the ranks and they got to senior management level and the representation dropped off. So we were working with the organization at lots of different parts of the organization to see if we could um, start to increase representation um, and, really, uh, and really figure out why, um, you know, what were the systemic challenges that were resulting in people not being able to move up that, um, that hierarchical journey. Um, so that's one of the examples in terms of health and well-being at work. At the moment, I'm delivering a lot of training 
um, a lot of stuff around um, mental health awareness, a lot of stuff around trauma. Um, um, so that's at the individual level. And at the organizational level, some of the projects that I've done have been like, for example, reviewing or um, evaluating health and well-being initiatives within a large global energy company um, and then supporting them to identify their um, health and well-being strategy going forward. That was one of my earlier projects. I do a lot of work, as I've said, in training. So I do training around disability awareness, um, uh, presentation skills, um, deliver a lot of mindfulness training. Um, lots of stuff around health and well-being. I do a lot of associate work and do training around um, positive psychology. Um, and I feel a bit icky about some of the stuff that I do uh, because I really don't like looking at health and well-being just from the individual level. I really like looking at what are the contextual factors that impact on health and well-being. Um, so I kind of try to uh, try to balance that out a little bit. Like I say, I do a lot of coaching and then I'm hoping to return to my PhD and when I return to my PhD, um, I am going to, I'm changing my whole PhD story. So my PhD was looking at interventions to foster authentic leadership. And I'm changing my research question to say, is authenticity a privilege? Um, and I'm going to completely rip to shreds what I've already done in my PhD and adopt a really critical, if anyone knows about critical theory, I'm going to adopt a critical theory lens and I'm going to do um, an autoethnographic piece and completely rip to shreds everything that I've done and challenge it from a much more critical, much more, um, uh, which basically means looking at power dynamics and power struggles and inequity. Um, so that's, that's kind of what I'm doing. And I'm going to stop because I think I've been, I think my 15 minutes is way up. So thank you. Thank you so much, Taz. It's fine. I don't think anyone's up to the 15 minutes time, but it was more of a guideline. <laughs> so it's okay. But thank you so much for sharing. Um, there's quite a lot of questions for you as well at the end, but don't worry, I'll go through them later. But it's it's so interesting to see somebody who, it seems to me, have had a very successful portfolio career. I also have a portfolio career, but I felt like mine has not been as smooth as yours or as interesting as yours. So thank you so much for sharing. And there's some questions around some of how you combine your mindfulness with other stuff. So um, yeah, just stay tuned and Taz will be answering your questions. And the last speaker we have is Charlotte Apong, who is a digital transformational lead at the moment. And she's going to let you know about her journey into that career. And it's going to be really interesting. So everybody listen up. Thank you, Grace. I'll try and make it interesting. Um, try my best anyway. So hi, um, thanks Grace for introducing me. So yes, my name is Charlotte Opong and I currently work as a digital transformation lead, um, which basically is about helping organisations adopt new technologies and new systems and processes and ways of working into their organisation. So before I talk a bit more about that, I'll talk about my kind of journey. So um, it won't... You know, like it will be a familiar story that we've heard today. Um, I started off doing my undergraduate um, in psychology. I went to Brunel. Um, like many people, when I did my undergraduate, I had kind of these ideas of me being a clinical psychologist. I thought I would have a quaint little office. I thought I'd have a leather reclining chair. I thought I'd have all of my clients kind of laid out on this level of reclining chair telling me all of their problems and I would kind of help them unpick the issues in their lives and kind of lead them to the promised land of well-being and health. Um, so that's kind of where I thought my journey would go. Um, so during my undergraduate um, degree, I undertook a placement, um, we undertook two placements, but one of my placements was with a mental health charity. Um, it was really interesting work, working um, with people who were recovering from mental illness, um, who were kind of trying to transition back into, you know, the world, into work, into being well again and whatnot and just kind of supporting those people with either just general well-being, day-to-day things, or also like careers advice and support and help. And um, it was a really, really good placement, really interesting, um, lots of great people who both worked in the, the organization and also all of the clients that we worked with as well were really you know great people and it taught me a lot and one of the things it taught me was that it wasn't the industry that or the part of psychology um, that I wanted to go into um, 
just in terms of where I thought I would kind of be the best fit and also kind of being able to add the most value, I realized that probably wasn't for me. Um, so when I left university, um, graduated, not left, graduated, I should say, didn't just walk out after that. And um, so when I graduated from university, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. Um, I had a degree, I had like, you know, lost a bit of direction in terms of where I wanted to go. Um, so I ended up doing um, kind of typical graduate thing, doing a year abroad, um, going to Japan to kind of teach English, which was really good for a year, and um, did like, you know, into, you know, start, um, teaching people abroad and um, supporting them learn English. Um, so that was really good. When I came back, um, I applied to do a graduate scheme at a London local authority um, and I was successful and got onto that graduate scheme with a local authority um, and during that time I did a number of placements as you do so you kind of do rotations around different departments um, one of the rotations I did was within the HR department and for me that was kind of a moment where things kind of clicked into place so within the HR department obviously it's really focusing on the people within the organization and um, how to kind of make sure those people are performing well how to make sure that those people are um, you know learning development is um, is taking care of making sure that you know all of the HR policies and practices and all of those things that kind of focus on the people and the organization to make sure that they are doing the best so that the organization can be um, doing its best um, that kind of started to resonate with me quite a bit and when I did that I was thinking to myself this this feels right um, I don't have my leather reclining chair in my crane office but I kind of felt like I was in a place where it, it felt right to me in terms of where I wanted to be and what I wanted to do and where I wanted my focus to be and that was definitely around um, the people side and then kind of thinking about my year that I spent teaching English again abroad it was about interacting with people helping people to kind of um, in, enhance their skills learn new languages communicate and then people training and um, self-development element to all of these things that really started to kind of fit together for me. So unlucky for me though, when so my graduate scheme was two years and it kind of was coming to an end as we were entering, I think it was the 2010 recession or so. Um, so it wasn't obviously new jobs weren't being created and it wasn't a great time to be kind of coming out of a, a safe kind of graduate scheme. But luckily I was able to find a part-time role within the organization working on the future jobs fund. But also what I then did is I did my master's in organizational psychology at City University. And for me, that was really great because I was able to continue working again in that kind of space where it's focused on people, focused on helping young people get into work, develop their skills, et cetera, et cetera. But also, like I say, doing my master's in organizational psychology and, and developing some of the foundational skills that I would obviously be taking forward within my career. And, and for me, I think when I was doing those two things together and taking into consideration my previous experiences um, within HR, within some of the other areas, it was kind of like, yes, this really kind of feels like the type of work I want to do, the type of environment I want to be in. I'm slightly corporate. I like to kind of wear nice clothes to work and, you know, make sure maybe have a kitten heels on or whatever so I, I like that space I like the environment I like the type of work and how and how that all kind of meshed together for me so after doing that I so finished my master's and then I went on to do another role within the local authority focusing on a training role within a new service that was opening so it was like a contact center and my role was around kind of being a trainer within that service again kind of linking with the organizational psychology because you look at training learning development and all of that type of stuff and spent 
about another eight years within the local authority, but consistently, so I'm, I'm a little bit, like I get bored a little bit from about, about 18 months is my max. And then I start getting bored and I'm like, oh, I need to do something else. I need to kind of move somewhere else. But, you know, different opportunities were opening up, um, different promotional opportunities were opening up. So it's given me consistently that opportunity to kind of, again, build my skills, enhance my skills, move into different areas, kind of from being a trainer to then managing the team that I was in once there was a bit of a change in terms of the the structure of the service and and the team and then moving into different areas. And one of my final roles that I did within the local authority was working as a, so it it didn't have the same name, but essentially it was a um, digital transformation lead working on a project um, for a system. So I work um, specifically at the moment with the Oracle system. So I won't go into great detail about it, but obviously an um, Oracle is a system that you can use for your HR and people management. You can also use it for finance and payroll and and you know accounting and all those types of things other organizations use it in a multitude of other areas so i started working on this project within the local authority and quickly realized that this is really interesting and i you know was really enjoying it learning about this new system and having to kind of figure out what the the changes were before between where we were in the organization and where we wanted to go. And really kind of that felt for me a natural progression in terms of my, um, in terms of my work. So I got about a couple of years experience about on that project for about two, two and a half years or so. And, And anyone who's kind of thinking about what do I do next, digital transformation, as you can imagine, is a really um it's a really big space it's a really um relevant space um something that you know you just look at the way we work now it's it's digital it's we're not going back systems are going to be you know uh, systems and digital is going to be a really big kind of area going forwards so I then obviously with that kind of kind of skills under my belt and also working in Oracle, which is a system that's really sought after, I was able to move on and find another role um, within a quite a well-known charity who are also implementing Oracle and took up my kind of official role as a digital transformation lead. So what do I do? Um, I think I said at the beginning, so I kind of help organisations to adopt and exploit tech, new technologies um, to achieve beneficial um, outcomes and add value. So that's kind of like the marketing piece. But what that means, I suppose, is it's about helping organisations and institutions um, bring in new systems, new technologies, so in this case, um, Oracle technology, um, really overhauling some of their, uh, I suppose, legacy systems. Um, People will be using a multitude of other HR systems or, um, you know, finance systems or whatever that might be. And it's helping organisations move from that place of where they are to kind of moving into the new world. And I think my role is quite important in this and that kind of change in digital transformation space because what generally happens when an IT, because it is essentially around an IT project and an IT product. So what generally happens is that organizations will sometimes spend millions or at least hundreds of thousands on a new IT system and you know get people in to do the IT side and the architecture and the build and all of this type of stuff which is really really vitally and essentially important but at the end of the day it's people who use the system and it's the people using the system properly that will make it a success or not there's a figure that people always shout about something like 70 percent of change programs fail because adoption isn't you know isn't as good as it should be and and whatnot so um in that kind of change space it's really important to make sure that it's it's the people who are supposed to be using the technology who are able to use it properly so that's what i do and then obviously there's the other piece about when you're bringing in a new system it's yes it's an it product but actually this will really kind of change the culture 
it will turn into processes first of all um, and also the culture so what I mean by that is um, depending on what type of systems people might have been using previously there might not have been that much self-service within the business processes so if you I don't know just a random example if I as an employee wanted to book leave maybe I would have to go to my manager my manager would fill in an excel spreadsheet or they might have a system existing already and I'd kind of tell my manager and they would do some bits and then you know they would say okay and update the system and and I, I wasn't really involved in that process other than having a conversation but actually when you're moving to some of these new technologies it is really kind of focusing on like how do we get people more empowered how do we improve self-service how do we make sure that the process is a lot more streamlined and a lot more user friendly so in doing that that's going to kind of look at how we're changing the processes within within the organization as well as bringing in this new system as well um, and then obviously that's going to change the way that people work and and like I said in, in many cases sometimes quite dramatically change the culture of the organization as well in some places so in terms of kind of what that means for me in terms of my role there's quite a few areas so there's lots of employee engagement and stakeholder management one of the key parts of my role is really kind of understanding what it is that we're doing in terms of the new system the new processes the new ways of working and then being able to kind of communicate that out to the different people and the different stakeholders in the correct way at the right time to make sure that everyone is knowledgeable on board and informed about what we're doing and um, that's really important because I mean hopefully no one's been through that situation before but I'm sure many people have where you know you get an email on a Monday and it says oh by the way this is the new thing we're doing can you now do XYZ and, and instantly your back's up and you're like, huh, why am I doing that? Like, you, you haven't been engaged, you haven't been told about it, you don't know. So it's really important for me to maintain and do some of that stakeholder engagement and stakeholder management. And whether that's at the employee level or kind of like at the leadership level or manager level, that's really important to make sure that everyone's kind of brought along on that journey. Another thing will be around that knowledge transfer and training. So that's going to be a really key, important part of my role. So as we get, so a project will go through various phases. And as we get to the deployment stage, so that's the stage where we are now looking to roll out this system. It's about training people to use it. And there will be various um, different iterations of what that training looks like depending on the user groups that you are delivering to so an employee who has quite basic functionality or need to use the system they might use it to book leave they might use it to check their pay slips they might use it to you know update their personal details so they would have a training package a manager might need to use it for more things in terms of kind of managing their team, understanding their team's performance and metric. You know, if you're a HR business partner or someone um, who's in the payroll department, you would have increased functionality. And obviously you'd need to be able to run the payroll or if you're a HR business partner, you'd be doing grievance processes or any of those kind of HR functionalities. So what I would look to do and what I generally do is do that part of the training needs analysis, understanding what the different needs are across the different user groups, building that out, really understanding what groups need to be trained in which way, and then kind of designing and delivering that training as, as is necessary and kind of doing that in, in a way that makes sense. So you want to make sure that you've got some of the key people trained. So do your operational staff trains before you then go on and roll out to some of the other employees and general members who will be using the system. So that's quite a key part. So how do I use my like grounding in organisational psychology? I think I use it quite a lot, actually. Um, and I'd never really thought about this until I was asked to do this, this presentation. But yeah, so like a lot of the people who have um, spoken today, I think one of the key things is obviously around that research and analysis piece. So I, for example, part of my role is to 
understand how ready the organization is for change so we do a change readiness assessment and that involves kind of speaking to different people doing interviews doing questionnaires doing focus groups to understand what the current appetite is what the current capabilities are and really getting the lay of the land as it is and then that gives me a bit of a starting point and then helps me kind of then draw them to understand where it is that we need to get to in terms of this change journey again think a lot of the things that we all do or especially in terms of what i do is kind of using the the theory so the theories and the knowledge and everything that we gain from our undergraduate and also msc degrees to now kind of turn that into practice so there's stuff around understanding of um human behavior and what mo for me a key thing is what motivates people like how do i encourage people to do something that they probably don't want to do it's going to be hard work to change we we know it's hard work to change so understanding that using some of the always looking at change theory so we'll all know about the change curve cotter's model of change we use a model called Prosky prosky adcar so looking about you know how do we create awareness how do we create desire in people knowledge how do we create ability so that's a training and reinforcement so making sure that we use all of those models like I said, in terms of the training, looking at and understanding theories around learning and learning styles and, and how to kind of deliver good training that will ensure that people actually pick up the skills that they need and able to do that. And also around coaching as well. So one of the things I do is um, around coaching. So that could be coaching employees or managers or leaders in order to help them navigate through the change. We know that change is difficult. And especially if you are a manager, not only are you being faced with change because you've got to change in your role, um, but you've also now got to support the members in your team. And you've also now got to still deliver um, for the kind of leaders in the organization. So kind of helping and supporting leaders and managers and employees kind of through coaching and supporting them is really an important part of the role um, and something that I think is really important as well. And also just kind of um, making sure that people feel, feel comfortable to transition through that journey. So very quickly, what does um, a typical day look like? Um, that will really depend on where we are in the program. So a program will go through various stages. Um, so right now we are in the build stage, which means we are building the version of the product that we want. And then that will then go into the deployment stage um, afterwards. So for me at the moment, um, I spend a lot of hours in kind of like two, three hour meetings, um, basically just with my team and with the developers and whatever, um, just kind of going through the system and understanding it and, and, and you know, quality assuring it and, and, and seeing what it looks like. And, and for me, I kind of go in there with a hat on of I'm here to represent what the what the people want or what the employees will want and what that kind of, um, if, it, if it's user friendly, if it's gonna be something that's going to work well for um, the organization. Um, so I spend a lot of time doing that at the moment. Um, also spending a lot of time kind of planning. So right now, my world is relatively calm. Um, so I'm doing a lot of planning for what comes next, as you can imagine, um, with the whole COVID situation, normally, this would be rolled out um you know we do training sessions we do drop-in sessions um we'd be you know very supportive we do floor walking and all of that type of stuff but actually this is completely different because now we are going to be rolling out in a very digital way so there's no floor walking there's no drop-in sessions in that um usual sense of the word so now i'm kind of looking at how do we do this digitally how do i do digital drop-in sessions how do i do digital floor walking or whatever that is something else um so that's a lot of the work i'm doing at the moment kind of trying to understand and plan for what that looks like um, so sorry so just to end what i was going to say is um i think a key message from me would be kind of like follow your interests and be open to the opportunities that um you that come to you and you will find the role that you like or 
uh, you know love maybe but i just say yeah just follow your interest if if this feels right to you if it feels good if you know it's an area you're interested in then just keep kind of going down that path thank you so much and that's a really good really good message like just find what fits you best and don't worry about what other people would say because one thing i've learned is that if i listen to people i would not be doing anything that i probably liked i'd be doing what other people think i should do thank you for listening to this half of the podcast the second half of the podcast showcases the question and answer session that was held after the event which is live stay tuned to listen to it thank you for listening